Hey crew, welcome back to the 20th episode of the Skippy Report. On this episode, I sit down on location, finally, with one of the co-owners of Happenstance Coffee Pub, which is found in downtown Port Hope, downtown Coburg, and the Happenstance Bakery on Peter Street, just outside of downtown Port Hope. So grab yourself a beverage and a comfortable chair or download this episode so you can listen to it on the fly and enjoy the conversation Nick and I have about how he started out in Grand Rapids, Michigan, traveled through the U.S. and ended up in Toronto and eventually ending up in Port Hope, which over 200 years ago, almost, was called Toronto until some place called Fort York decided to usurp the name. So uh, enjoy. Skippy of the Skippy Report here, reporting on the road in downtown Port Hope with Nick from, this is a happenstance, coffee pub, bakery. What other endeavors? Is it, uh, the names are correct, right, Nick? Yeah, I've got happenstance, coffee pub, happenstance, bakery and coffee roastery, cafe, happenstance, and happenstance farm. Oh, yeah, that's right, because you opened the second shop in Coburg. We did. So I met Nick here getting coffee and then one time at William Street Pub, yeah. our brew, uh, brewing company, sharing uh, some craft beers. So that's another thing that we have in common. And uh, so um, tell us a little bit about yourself, Nick. Where are you from? Who you are? Uh, so I, it's nice to talk to you, Keith. Yeah, and and this has been a long time coming, actually. I guess so, yeah. But you kept telling me to do it, and I, I'm not sure what to expect, so I'm in for the adventure today. Um, but I'm Nick Cluley. I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I lived in many places around the U.S. and met lots of great people, and then ended up in Toronto uh, about 12 years ago, in maybe 2009, and moved six years ago to Port Hope through a series of happenstance. And that's where our oh, business name comes from. Okay. Because before it was like uh, Port Hope Coffee Company? We were called Coffee Public. Oh, that's it. Um, we had previously opened four locations in Toronto. Wow. Um, and brought that name here with us. And then when we decided to leave Toronto behind um, and subsequently we're opening a bakery, Coffee Public Bakery seemed just even too confusing for us. So we went with... Uh, obscure english word <laughs> so um yeah and for us i think happenstance is uh sort of indicative of the way we try to live our lives which is being open to positive things happening because i think you're much more likely to acknowledge and enjoy those things when you're open to them so that's that's what happenstance means to us is really creating an environment where positive things can happen and that's you know a collection of a lot of different inputs and and you definitely do that in this community um, moving here to an opening happenstance, you've really embraced and uh, promote uh, the community and um, how to help the community and reach out to people who need help. Like I, I love the part that you pay all of your employees um, a living wage and that you don't need tips, but if we want a tip, we can leave tips and tell us where those tips go. Oh, so our, we actually don't take any tips anymore as of last year, but we do raise money for the food bank. Um, they're also the recipients of all of our leftover bread. Um, one unfortunate part of 
bakeries in general is there is inherently a fair amount of food waste. Right. Um, unless we can get everyone to order their bread two days ahead of time, which would be an ideal situation. <laughs> we, we will always have extras. Uh, so for us, the food bank gets a fair amount of that. Um, our pigs on the farm get some of those occasionally, but we make sure they're going to people first. Right. Uh, and the food bank does a great job of, of directing that to, to the folks in our community that need, need some food. That's really awesome. And I, and I loved in how you and I kind of just recently got in contact was that post of the young lady who was not quite crying, but she did say she could cry over her spilt coffee. <laughs> Somebody said, come back, we'll, we'll give you another one. <laughs> yeah, of course, always. Yeah, I know it's, uh, we like this business because it's not, um, it's not about the transaction happening at any given moment. It's about sort of a symphony of transactions and business that happens over time. Like no one's retiring off of one coffee. So it's really about creating deep connections with our customers. And part of the reason I finally said, let's have this chat is I'm interested more and more in how we can show people under the hood of what we do um, and how we are the way we are. Um, so that hopefully they can, think about that when they're making their buying decisions and maybe a few more people come our way. Like we, we really hope to find more and more kindred folks that yeah. um, are into what we're into really. So that's, those are the people we most like serving. And and that's why I go, I come here. I, uh, I love what you do and what you stand for and how you have the happenstance farm and, and that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's uh, a great thing. So tell me about uh, growing up in Grand Rapids because that's one of our connections is the, Founders Brewery that's there. Yeah, so uh, Founders has done amazingly well for Grand Rapids and for itself. Um, I'd say they're definitely a business that we'd love to replicate in terms of their connection and investment in the community for starters. But they, um, I uh, grew up in a little, little street on the southeast side of Grand Rapids, and I grew up um, riding my bike everywhere and playing basketball all day in front of the house, and I was outside <laughs> for 10 hours a day, and... Um, those have informed one of our other projects, which is that my wife and I founded a school called Road Less Traveled Academy where our kids attend. And so I think that um, Grand Rapids was great and that it connected me really closely to the outdoors and a really good group of people. Um, I had the benefit of going to a, a private Catholic high school there, which took me out of my neighborhood and led me into downtown. And um, that's where I sort of started realizing that maybe I wasn't super comfortable with the way the world was set up <laughs> in terms of the areas I drove through and the very visible change in people's skin color as I drove through those areas and the growing number of people that looked like they weren't uh, maybe as safe and warm as they'd like to be when I went through those areas. Um, so for all of the good things Grand Rapids was, it is a Midwest town city in the U.S. and all of those have certain um, repercussions from years of redlining and mortgage loans and lots of other things we could get into or not. But yeah, uh, yeah. But lots of institutional things that, that let made me leave. So that was basically, I left when I was 17 for no lack of love for Grand Rapids, but um, uh, just wanting to s go and explore a little bit more. So I um, moved first to Cleveland and then to Tucson and then to Los Angeles. And then I spent a lot of time in Philadelphia and New York. And wow. Um, traveled the U.S. for a while, opening coffee shops for a franchise company. And, um, you know, I think through all of those things, like people have always been really important to me. And I, I um, really consider myself a student of human behavior and the human experience. And uh, being able to see all those various places in the U.S., which were all completely different and the same, uh, really kind of formed the way I think about the world in a lot of ways. Right. Um, 
Which is really cool being in Canada now, too, because I think having lived in another country gives a really kind of nice um, perspective on things sometimes. Um, but yeah, so that's what I did in Grand Rapids. Um, Founders Brewing, I had one of the first. I was mug number 65. Ooh. Uh, so after they opened, I was of drinking age, of course, at that point in Grand Rapids. Then I was back there, and um, they were in a very small little place on northwest side of town half the space was brewing tanks and half was a pool table and about 12 seats and uh, I spent quite a bit of time there um, it was after I moved away that uh, they really took off and expanded into their great brewing facility and community party space they have now right and then we've gone back a couple of times as uh, little pilgrimages for their for their beer festival the founders fest every every summer that they well, have most summers last few years accepted Um yeah, and they and they literally are an example of another one of my passions is really just public space and how cities are built, and they've completely transformed downtown Grand Rapids uh, with their facility there, and and maybe for a six block radius around them, it's all different and wow. better because they're there. So it's it's pretty cool to see. Uh, it's interesting. This kind of fits in with my last podcast interview with uh, Bevan Waite. He's an architect who's a telemark skier, but he's also a filmmaker, and he's transitioning into filmmaking. And uh, it was the same sort of thing. Why he l- loves architecture is that like, and we got into this with uh, the relationship between how towns are built versus or with uh, people in mind and that sort of stuff. And I had a professor at, when I was doing my bachelor of education, Mac Freeman, and he had these courses, and uh, one of them was called Human Dimensions in Education, and uh, it was all about. If you get a high school or any school with more than 400 kids, then it's all about being a number. And then we talked about towns like Port Hope and uh, how, why I get attracted to them is that they're not above three stories. Like, you know, Port Hope has sort of a third story up there, but, uh, you know, it's all kept low to the ground, no no um what do you call it uh, i i always say interruption of uh sunshine well, that's so many boxes you could open up right there um <laughs> well there is a building proposed for port hope that's seven stories right now which you may have seen which is an interesting topic of conversation but more relevant to me i think is that they're doing the walton street reconstruction so if you do have listeners in port hope i hope they'll go on and give their feedback um, because to your friend Bevan's point, I think they've uh, taken on redesigning the street for cars, which is nice. But unfortunately for my business, cars have never bought coffee from me. Uh, yeah. They have sort of left, in my opinion, some of the people that use the street out of their out of their thinking in a lot of ways. Um, and it's a really big opportunity to have a more uh, people-friendly downtown. Like for me, I think I've, I've done some work with uh, Gail Peñalosa from 880 Cities. I was involved in pedestrianizing Young Street about 10 years ago in Toronto. And in general, I think that uh, people really like seeing people. And I'd love to have more places for congregating yeah, and for being together and talking. And uh, for us, that's part of why we started our coffee shop. Um, unfortunately, we built this store that we're sitting in for people to be really close and talk in low voices. And that wasn't the right stuff the last 18 months. <laughs> so, But you have this great space upstairs that we where do. we are. Yeah, the cup storage, the beautiful cup storage, <laughs> the most beautiful and expensive cup storage in Port Hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because this, this was part of the old drugstore, wasn't it? Yeah, so this was connected Watson to Next drugs. Door. Uh, previously, I think it was a Radio Shack at some point. All these second floors, really interestingly, used used to be dry storage for dry goods companies. So this, in its original inception, would have been, rather than the basement, the all the storage um, would be upstairs in these towns. And so there's uh, 
we uncovered the old bricks, which are beautiful. So oh, they're we gorgeous. Sealed them up again, gave a little paint up here, and yeah, it's a beautiful space now. So it's a, um, yeah, I think there's, and that's you know, Port Hope has a lot of second floors and third floors that that could be a little bit maybe better tended to and create some opportunities for the town too. And we're hoping to do right. better that here. Cool. Well, so uh, you left Grand Rapids, toured around America, went back to Grand Rapids. You said you were working in opening uh, coffee shops for a franchise. So is is that how you got the idea to do uh, your own? Well, actually, I, I worked in my first coffee shops in Grand Rapids when I was 17. I then worked in some in Cleveland when I went to university, and I played soccer there in university and worked in a coffee shop and didn't go to class as much as I should, so I... <laughs> I spent about two years in Cleveland rather than four and then continued with my college pursuits until I had about 50% more credits than I needed for a degree, but had no degree. And then I opted out. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but I felt like it served its purpose. But the, um, I actually worked for that franchise company for a while in California until I decided they were based in California and Long Beach. Uh, and then I realized that I didn't really like the franchise business model. Right. I didn't find they were able to or willing to support the franchisees in the way that maybe they thought they were. And right. I was the guy on the ground. Um, so I left and I had two job offers. One was uh, doing mobile plant watering for a mobile plant watering business. The other, which in California didn't sound great being on the road all the time, but also a cool way to see a lot of places. And the other one was to go and work for ING Direct Bank and do this weird cafe thing they had. So I uh, chose that one. And that's what brought me then to Chicago and then subsequently to Toronto. I was in charge of um, developing these concept retail spaces, basically right when online banking was starting. So they were an online bank that was in really early and we built, rather than bank branches, we built places where people could come and learn to use the bank services. Okay, so that's where I see the commercials <laughs> for Capital One, I think it is, where they, it looks like a cafe and not a bank. So my my, my uh, colleague in Chicago that we opened the Chicago location with, when I so when I came to Canada, the U.S. Uh, was sold while I was here to Capital One, ING Direct. Um, subsequently, the Canadian bank has been sold to Scotiabank. It is called now Tangerine. Yeah. Um, My brother-in-law is the president of Tangerine. Oh, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> Who is that now? Dave Dom. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, he's a senior vice president at Scotiabank. He, he must have been at Scotia before. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but but my friend Sean that was with me in Chicago has gone on and now they have 50 of these things. So when we were there, we had seven in the U.S. And we were both really passionate that it was a cool way to talk to people about their money and the business model of having people keep more of their money and pay less fees seemed really smart. Um, and he's really run with it. And they've, I think he's built a lot more people that are supportive of that model. I'm not sure. Sh- I think they, they must. I think our lease was long enough where they still must be operating them in, in Canada, too. But I haven't been to the one in Toronto for quite a while. I, you know what? I, I, I think the cafe model is really awesome. I was in a, a bicycle shop in Virginia. And it was in an older building. And I thought they had a really great uh, approach. They had their bike mechanic. But then a lot of cyclists, like yourself or myself, we may not have all the tools to work on our bike. And so they had spaces that you could rent mm-hmm. for 10 bucks. And you know what? Lo and behold, if you need a part, there's a bike shop right there. And they employed mechanics who were friendly, who weren't afraid to come and show you how to do things if you weren't as mechanically inclined. And I always thought... That would be cool to open a business like that. And cyclists love coffee also and have a a coffee shop attached to a bicycle shop. It's so smart. And it allows, I think increasingly you're going to see coffee shops, not not ones with drive-thrus and long lines, but like the little mom and pop shops will have 
either a bookstore, a bike shop, a laundromat, an ad value of some kind that gets a few more dollars in and gives people a place to actually hang out. Because right. I think especially as a result of this most recent pandemic is um, people don't really know how to, we, we find when we deal with the public right now, people's way they interact with each other has been greatly changed. Um, and I think we're gonna have to relearn how to be human a little bit. So it's gonna right. have to take some really intentional spaces to connect people and give them opportunities to do that in a way that's not a Facebook forum. Right. <laughs> um, and I, I think that, I think especially in Canada where I think it generally my experience has been people are a little less, uh, open to meeting someone new, say at a bar or at a bookstore or by happenstance, for instance. Um, there's a really big opportunity to, to consciously all start working together a bit more and reaching out and just, just, Talking to strangers is such a nice thing to do. Yeah, and you know what? This this is sort of like the podcast. Yeah, I didn't I didn't expect it to uh, have to do most of it on Zoom. Right. But in the very beginning, like my first interview was with uh, Tyler and Aaron from Forgers Farms, cool. and uh, you know they're less than five k from me, and we had we did it over Zoom, and uh, even when you were talking about getting together in and socializing not in a Facebook forum. Uh, there's one thing that we had started because the ski season had ended and my buddies are like, well, who do we drink beer with? Because we'd always, you know, sit around the back of the car or in the clubhouse, have beer and that before we head home or we would bring some snacks and stuff. And So we tried Facebook, but you can only get so many on there. Then we tried this thing called House Party and it corrupted my buddy's computer. <laughs> <laughs> Took him an awful long time to clean it up. And so we thought, okay, we're going to get do Zoom. <laughs> And then um, when I posted it on, on Facebook, my buddy in Oregon goes, hey, I want to get in on this. And so we've had some, we call them uh, gear, beer, and anything weird. Because we just, you know, one of the one of my buddies, he's a greenskeeper, head greenskeeper. So one of the other guys was trying to figure out how to get rid of his weeds in his lawn. So Todd's telling Tony how to do this. And he goes, but the cheapest way is if you don't like weeds, just cut your lawn more often. And you won't see the flowers come up. Fair enough. Yeah, so, you know, we, we've had some of these uh, gear, beer, and anything weird episodes. And we've had people, Yarl in Oregon, friends here in Ontario, somebody in Colorado, Utah, even Australia. So as we're drinking beer, they're eating breakfast. Cool. Yeah. So well, that's awesome. It becomes a nice way to meet people. Oh, you know? uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and then when other people see what we're doing, they, they chime in and they say, hey, next time you do this, invite us, you know, like. So it's kind of hard uh, in our time zone to have the Europeans with us because they're in bed. So I've decided that I'm going to reach out and I interview a few of them for the podcast because they uh, um, have a lot of wealth and knowledge in uh, some of the ski topics that I enjoy. So, yeah, I, I, I think there's been the negative side of the pandemic of people not getting together. And then the positive thing is, uh, having things like Zoom calls from globally. Oh, it certainly would have been a lot worse <laughs> 10 years ago. You know, seeing grandparents and things this year for my kids was great. Yeah. Um, I love Zoom for all that it is. It also makes me feel very lacking for other things. Right. <laughs> so I like, so I appreciate it. I don't spend a lot of time on it. I, uh, yeah, I, 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 I miss, um, I miss body language. And I think that the performance that you're having on a camera when you can see yourself is just different than, when yeah. you can't. So anyway, I, I think it's certainly better than it could be, but I, my, my preferred, 
bird human interaction is still in, in 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 a coffee shop or on the street or running into an old friend on the subway that you don't expect to see. Yeah, those, exactly. are the, those are the things that I miss most, you yeah. know, from the last year and a half, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We've we've been uh planning out our ski season and I think we were fortunate that uh, mountain where we bought our pass last year at the cottage, they refunded our pass. <clears throat> and um we're gonna go back there again this year and we've planned our weeks and you know what? It's like growing up as a kid. You just live in the car and you know, see people on the mountain, talk to them, and you just ride ride the chair by yourself if you're skiing solo or with your family. So, yeah. you know, you learn to make things work. But for sure. Uh, yeah. Oh, we have so many. I, I don't mean to sound dour. We have so many things to be thankful for and positive about, especially here in, in southern Ontario that I'm grateful for every day. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's just, it is just the world and the way it is. Yeah. And you know what? It's, it's uh, the pandemic's made people think about where their food's coming from. Cause it, like you were saying, you started happenstance farms. Uh, you probably started that before the pandemic. Oh yeah. Yeah. Developing it. Yeah. I think so. The whole reason that we're in business is since this time we started, our passions are the environment and the people that we surround ourselves with. So our main focus has been to be able to ethically source as much of our product as possible. Um, and we're probably at about, 75, 80% of non-conventional locally sourced items at this point for what we provide. Um, And we also have always paid people well above minimum wage, closer to and now an actual living wage. Um, And those make the business books look a whole lot different. Uh, And so for us, I think part of what we are trying to start doing more of is adding context and value to where people's food comes from and how it works and what it is. Um. Because in general, I think food is going to get more expensive anyways. And I would encourage people to just decide to pay more for it now and get used to it and treat yourself to better food. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Treat yourself to better food. Exactly. Like, you know, um, do you raise meat birds? We, well, or you did? sort of, we have, we have, I made a, a large batch of pate yesterday because we raised uh, meat roosters in some way, mostly for our dogs, but no, the rest of our chickens are all layers. Oh, okay. Yeah, because yeah. my daughter started, this would have been right at the beginning or near the beginning of the pandemic, building a chicken coop. She wanted layers, and then she decided she wanted to get into meat chickens. Mostly, we, I don't know, she was thinking of it as a business, but then she quickly realized when she was trying to figure out how much to sell her eggs for, that farmers really aren't that rich, even though they have all sorts of big equipment and huge tracts of land and all that stuff. She goes, you know, for me to make some money on my eggs, I need to sell them for $7 a dozen. Well, we sell ours for nine. Yeah. So I agree. Um, so I was listening to some podcasts from the USFRA, which is the U.S. Farmer and Ranch Association this weekend, listened to lots of their stuff. And currently the um, understood value of what a farmer gets from a dollar food purchase is 14 cents. So for every dollar of even fresh fruit and fresh veg, not even processed in any way, they're receiving 14 cents of that dollar. To me, that's, that's a failed state. Yeah. um, To be honest with you, like it's, it's just beyond the pale. And and to do that, those farmers have been subsidized with um, GMO corn and soy and for feed. And um, the food system's goal since the fifties has been to have widely available cheap food. And I think that things like proteins should probably be scarce and drive a really big price and there shouldn't be as much of it, right. um, especially for the animal ethics and treatment of animals reasons. 
and that our fruits and vegetables, like, you know, they should be raised by people. So corporate farms usually refer to only fruit and vegetable farms. And the corporate part is that they're using migrant labor or other cheap and underpaid labor to bring those products to you. And those farmers are generally farming upwards of 7,000 acres in the U.S. So when you think about, you know, uh, when you start measuring your strawberry patch in, in quantity of hundreds of acres, it's a pretty large strawberry patch. And so I think our food system currently puts pain onto animals and the people that pick and grow our food for us at every turn. Um, and we're, we work extremely hard um, on our farm and in our business to subsidize our staff and our products in a way that can bring better food to people. And I think that's unfortunately what it's going to take. Um, yeah. and, and we're really grateful for the support we have locally of people that, that come and help us do that. Um, but we know that we're probably servicing five to 10% of the population right now. And when you look at the other businesses in this area, there's um, a lot of good food businesses in, in Northumberland County. There's two or three that are actively advertising that they're supporting local farms and you can see it in their prices. And that's the only, there's only a few. And yeah. so that's, that's, that's the opportunity for us. And I, my hope is that we'll get our heads around that situation before oil prices go to a point or something else happens that breaks our supply chain um, because our food doesn't come from here. Right. And so part of the, re- the reason we live in Port Hope, really, not specifically, but we wanted to move to a farming community was to have food security for ourselves and our family. Right. Um, not that we're, we're looking out for, for trouble, but from all the research and understanding of the world that I have, it is one of the most frail systems that we currently rely on so very heavily. Right. Yeah, it, it's it's it, and it doesn't take much of a garden to feed more than a family either. Mm-hmm. Like our little garden that we have out at Kieran's might be thirty by forty, but it was well planned and with all the different vegetables that we thought we would need through most of the year. And you know, we've fed uh, our three families, my two daughters, their families, and us. And uh, other people have benefited on a regular basis. You know, they've come out and said, ah, yeah, want some potatoes, want some beans. Their kids come out and harvest stuff. And they would never, ever experience that. And what you're eating is a more nutritionally dense food. You're getting more out of each bite. And you're also getting a soul-enriching food. And that's you can't really commoditize that. But I think that... Um, you know, there's actually a lot of programs, especially across the Midwest and the U S right now that are taking say ex convicts or people that had, um, serious trauma in their life and putting them in farming situations as a way to improve their mental health. And it's working great. And I think that there's a real argument that all of us should be getting our hands back in the soil and, and depending less on, on what are always major supermarket chains that are bringing us food that, um, is not really there to serve our best interests in most cases. So it's, uh, yeah, the, the closer everyone can get to their food in whatever way they can and, and make that a part of their life, you'll find your life slows down a little bit. Right. Um, that you're more attentive attentive to what you're eating, that you start noticing more birds and bugs. Um, all these wonderful things that are around us all the time that, you know, uh, you don't generally see from the grocery store parking lot or the, or the drive-thru that you're in. So there's um, there's so much to be gained by, by, I think, just being more in touch with uh, nature. Yeah, Mother Nature heals like the soul, the body, feeds the soul, feeds the body. It's incredible when you're out there working. I guess that's maybe why I've always loved the outdoors. That's, sure. that's yeah, part of my my character, I guess, is being in the outdoors. Well, it's good to feel small. 
Yeah, <laughs> especially when you're six foot six. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> a nice change. I mean, I'm sure when you're rocking down a huge ski slope, you don't feel like the biggest thing on that mountain. <laughs> no, so. no. I was, I was going to say when you were talking about the, the food security and all that sort of stuff, I, I was watching. I try to watch Canadian national news, local news, and then I'll watch American news. And they were doing an episode or a feature on food deserts. I had never, ever heard of that yeah. term. And I, I can see how it happens because Bronwyn lives in Windsor and I've been in Detroit and yep. you go through some neighborhoods and it's like pretty barren. Like, And Toronto's <laughs> wonderful for not having that problem as a big city that's near to us. But what replaces food for a lot of people is the convenience store junk. So, right. you know, I have a friend in New York, James Johnson, Fiat, and he, um, his whole thing is trying to get fresh, locally grown urban farm produce into 7-Elevens and corner stores and Macs. And, um, you know, why, why should it be so hard to get a piece of fruit? <laughs> you right. know, I think yeah. it's in this area, you know, you can go to the, the, the market or you can go to a farmer's market or you can go to the farm itself, which is a great opportunity. Yeah. Um, but if you go into our corner stores in town, even like if you live downtown Port Hope and you're on a subsidized income and you don't have the ability to drive somewhere, you can't get a piece of fruit anywhere. Well, I know. And I, I, I feel bad town wise or, or planning wise. Cause we used to back in the day when I moved here, there was a value mark right mm -hmm. down here under the train trestle. Yep. Now, and now almost a parking lot, not really in any. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, and, but that's that's reflective of the people. I mean, that's that's business, right? The people didn't come. It didn't work. They got a bigger space. Um, but in the same way that I think schools should be much smaller for student population, we should have a m like gr micro grocery stores make a lot of sense. You know, like all of our all of our logistics now is based on humongous trucks pulling up. So even for yeah. most restaurants in town here, they're not getting things off a small van. It's a, it's an eighteen wheeler pulling up in downtown Port Hope and taking four parking spots for an hour. Right. Um, and there's definitely a lot of logistics to be done in school or in, in uh, food, but most of those logistics are a result of not having local food. Um, you know, the food terminal itself exists because we don't have enough local yeah. food. So where, it services local farmers. But Where I grew up when I was talking to Bevan about this, about the size of society and all that sort of stuff, Montreal is a real uh, European-flavored city. And growing up, we had little corner stores, that they called the panners. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of had a medium, a larger corner store, but was also a grocery store. And they had guys, and I, I this was a job that young teenage boys had back in the day. I don't ever remember seeing many girls. Um, they would deliver your bags of grocery by bicycle. For sure. And and I remember they're, they're, maybe these grocery stores are twice the size of the coffee shop downstairs. And you get everything there. Yep. <coughs> they had a little butcher shop and, uh, and you know, all the fresh vegetables and, and fruit and that sort of stuff. It was not very far in Montreal for you to go to get that. Now, I don't know. I've moved, I moved away there in 1977, so I don't know what it's like. But my friend Jeff and I have toured around Lake Ontario. I've gone around four times. And whenever I'm in the U.S., I always have a hard time finding uh, a grocery store on the byways. We always have to go out to the interstate area yep. to where the big box stores are to get our groceries. And after you've ridden a hundred miles, you've got to put another 25 miles in 
to get there and back to your campsite. Yeah. And there's food <laughs> deserts in very wealthy areas in the U.S. and I think Canada. And you know, I think something that happened is those small grocery stores were feeding also a population that lived in the European style, and they knew they were going to those customers four days a week with small loads. They didn't need to take a large truck to bring their groceries because it wasn't a trunk full. It was a baguette and some pasta and yeah, some a, sauce a bag of groceries. Yeah, a, a bag of groceries. Yeah. And and none of those I bet are uh, were publicly traded. And that's another yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it was, it was mom and pops that had established a way to live their life in a way that was fulfilling for them and let them pay their mortgage. And none of them are are probably hiding money in the Caymans right yeah. now, like so many <laughs> other people. Um, but they had a rich life, and I think it's it's a matter of priorities and values. So. One of the questions that I have, just totally switching the direction here, is coming to Toronto. Was it when you worked for ING? It was. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, and this, so that was sort of your foothold into coming to Canada. Yeah, they were very nice. They brought me here. So I'm sorry for all of you that don't like that. But that's okay. That's okay. My, you know what? We were just discussing about families and that sort of stuff. So my family's like, they're from Vermont. They're what I call. Uh, French loyalists, because during the War of 1812, because they were French, France and the U.S. were always great friends. Yeah. And uh, so they uh, left Quebec and moved to uh, New England. And then subsequently, uh, some of them have come back. I'd like to figure out uh, who is still left down there in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, Bethlehem, New Hampshire area. Well, I like I like the nuances of history because even the fact that you called it the War of eighteen twelve tells me where your family ended up during that battle. <laughs> 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 you didn't have to say anything else. <laughs> I know I was kidding a friend. I was like, "Do you think uh, Sleepy Joe is uh, still uh, shy of opening our border because of what happened to the White House during the War of eighteen <laughs> twelve? <laughs> but it was the French Indian War on this side, I believe. If I'm not incorrect, is that is that all right? I think uh, they have a different name for it on the Canadian side, or is it? Is it? Am I just misinterpreting? No, I don't know. Um, I don't think it was the French. And we always talk about the War of eighteen twelve. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I just got my well, especially because we're United Empire loyalists, right? And I'm I'm not sure because I didn't. I was thirteen when I left Quebec, so I don't have a Quebec historical, you know, that they teach in in school. Yeah, but I do know that where some of my family lived. The uh, the English and the uh, Iroquois from just outside of Montreal would uh, intimidate the Americans as they were coming across. And and out in the middle of nowhere, there's this uh, nice museum, and it's about the Battle of Chattagui and how the Americans, they were always afraid of uh, indigenous people. And so somebody said, oh, we just make all sorts of loud noises like we're Indians, and, and I you know, they, they got scared back across the border and that sort of stuff. And and another thing that I thought was kind of interesting, uh, my aunt married a gentleman who, whose farm is right on the border with uh, upstate New York. And when soldiers immigrated to Canada back in the day, British soldiers, they were given 50 to 100 acres right along the border. Mm. And because they were retired soldiers... That was sort of the first buffer. first buffer against invading forces into, uh, you know, New France or, you know, Canada at the time. I would like to see a video of, of someone successfully defending a hundred acres by themselves. <laughs> <laughs> but even just even just to be that first person, yeah, yeah. you know, to, <laughs> to gather up and, and yeah, and you know what? They just sold that farm just recently, so it's been in in wow. his family 
since before 1812. Well, having moved to Canada and looking at a lot of other discrepancies in the world, I, I, I can say that I am and I'm anti-borders. <laughs> yeah. I am not anti many things, but invisible lines seem to cause lots of problems for lots of people. Yeah. And you know what? It does at our cottage because in this, in the part where my family is from on the South side of the road is Vermont. Oh yeah. And on the North side of the road is Quebec. <laughs> and there are some bike rides that I do. I'll cross the border four times and uh, the road is like, almost straight. five feet yeah <laughs> five feet from the border you can see the white pylons every so often yeah so ever since uh 9-11 we've had to always carry our passports or an enhanced license yeah. or something i remember like that. the driver's license days coming from michigan yeah oh yeah just show your license and come on through yeah yeah it's yeah it's a funny i think borders are pretty funny yeah they allow, they allow us to create lots of groups of things different than ourselves, but you know, I'm 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 pretty much of the opinion that everyone has sort of the same needs in their life on a daily basis across the world. For sure. We uh you know, we could we could do a lot better if we work together, I think, sometimes. Even right. going back to the war of eighteen twelve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you've come to Canada and you left the uh, left ING. Yeah, so Aaron started coffee. Well, it was called originally it was called CSI Coffee Pub. We were in the Center for Social Innovation in Toronto. We we opened our first two stores in different co working or, or community spaces in the city because it seemed to reflect our values really well. So, she had started that. I was um, in the U.S. when I worked for ING Direct. I always worked sort of in the city by myself with a team and um, small groups. And then I I in in Toronto I was close enough that I had obligations to be at the corporate office on a regular basis wasn't really a corporate office guy. So we had, I had to make it so far so I could finish my permanent residency. Um, but I would say that that wasn't my favorite time. Um, and it was a great job on paper. Like salary was great, you know, but I, I was looking for something a bit more fulfilling personally. So um, when I probably left a little before I should have from a financial perspective, but joined Aaron at the coffee shop, was much happier there. And then we started growing our, our coffee business together at that point. Um, yeah, so I had lots, I worked for ING Direct for, I think, eight years, had lots of great experiences and lots of great people I met and are in, co I'm in contact with, but it was time, time to do something for ourselves a bit more. Um, they gave me lots of great opportunities and, and I was able to make some really cool impacts, um, in Toronto and the, in the other cities I worked in, you know, on, on their behalf. And, uh, but, but yeah, the coffee shops where my heart was at. Cool. And coming to Port Hope just kind of oh so we were other than looking for land to yeah we figured uh so i turned 40 next year um Ooh. so I'm, i've got a lot of big plans for this next year to sort of refocus myself because i'm feeling kind of it's a seminal moment for me um but the uh we we were living in a, a three-bedroom rental by uh if you're familiar uh dupont and dufferin in toronto yep. um really enjoyed it but you know, this Toronto rental prices. We had had our first child. Um, we wanted to rent a big house because our family's all in the States. So if they can come up, we definitely want them helping and being at home with, <laughs> with at that right. point, our daughter. Um, but we still owned a house in Chicago at that point. And uh, the dollar for a while was at parity with the U.S. And then suddenly it was not again. Um, and that seemed like a good good time. When I got the, when I would receive a plumbing bill from, it was an apartment building we owned in Chicago. So we added a four flat. Um 
And when the plumbing broke and I had to pay for it in Canadian dollars, that wasn't very fun anymore. So, <laughs> we, so we decided to sell to sell that house. And luckily, because the dollar, it gave us a nice down payment. And we, we found a realtor who we knew and, and told them to find us uh, 10 acres within an hour of Toronto. And we didn't care where. And we actually didn't know of any of the places. We figured we'd be towards Niagara just because that's sort of where my family is in Michigan. And then got us close to a crossable border. Um, we'd never heard of a Port Hope um, when we came to the um came out to the area to visit uh we, we actually didn't even come into town we just really liked the property that we saw and, and we made an offer that day and that was our new house and then we started coming and exploring the actual town uh, a bit more after that um but yeah we, we were in it for the land we had, the property had raised garden beds and a chicken coop and apple trees. And those were actually our top reasons for buying it. And then it was also a pretty nice house, Nice, <laughs> but it was kind of ready. We actually came out and planted our garden before we actually moved into the house the first year. Oh, that's, awesome. so that's sort of where our intentions for it were as we, we were coming out in early May and turning garden beds and starting early seeds and, and hadn't even moved our, our stuff out yet. So, wow. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. I know we, I, we came out here my first year of teaching, bought our house and, and uh, I taught at Dr. Hawkins in the old building. And uh, it was several years later, I, there, I remember this moment when I was a kid. I'd come here and salmon fish and rainbow fish. And I remember standing in the river down by the files, uh, the old file company, thinking, this would be a pretty nice place to live. And, you know, when I was, uh, I think we moved here when I was 25, 24, 25. It's a really great place to live, and I think it's for me. It's the county. It is the one, the one I like most. Right. <laughs> the uh, I like Prince Edward County a lot too, but I find just as many wonderful things about our area, and I hope we can do better and better at, at showing more people what a great space it is. Yeah. Um, it, I I think we're still finally adjusting to the lack of size. Like my hometown. And I call it a town in Michigan was 500,000 people because that's a town in the States. Right. <laughs> and I don't think I ever lived anywhere smaller than that until I lived in Port Hope. And there is a real difference in like relinquishing some anonymity that you didn't even realize that you had right. in big places. Yeah. Um, and part of why I'm willing to speak to you finally is we've been really grappling with that. And we decided that if we don't have that anonymous nature anyways, that we need to be more intentional about how we communicate and what we do with our public lives, I guess. Right. Um, I know that was like me. Uh, I, one of my, or two of my jobs, phys ed teacher and shop teacher in a middle school. So I taught every kid in town and in a township, <laughs> yeah. unless they went to the Catholic system and I couldn't go anywhere. I still can't there, you know, I'll be in Vancouver and somebody will yell my name and there's a former student, you know, it's, I, I'll go skiing in Maine. I remember this one time. I, I didn't even get off the first chair of the day, and somebody's yelling, yo, Woodsy. It's like, you can't go anywhere without. Well, that means you made a lot of impacts. That's awesome. Yeah. You know? it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it is. It's just, it's uh, it's different. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like the small town, but uh, sometimes the anonymity or lack of it got to me, and I would, like, take a day off work and just hide in the house. and Because yeah. you know, on my street, at one point, I think every kid or one of the kids was in my school. I've yeah. taught them all on my street. So there, <laughs> there was like never, and, and what was kind of cool is nobody ever came and banged on my door and say, hey, can you help me with this assignment? <laughs> and, also, and also no eggs, which is a credit to you. <laughs> yeah, well, once, oh, never once, mind. <laughs> once. Yeah, I was actually sitting uh, 
doing our track and field. I'm a high jump coach and we were doing a high jump and it's kind of crappy weather and I've got like Gore-Tex on and I'm sitting in a chair with my clipboard underneath a clear garbage bag and all of a sudden a lay, an egg lands in my lap. It didn't break. And I look up and I can see a former student of mine who's in the high school running away from me. Uh. But somehow I got to the door before he did. And I was like, dude, you shouldn't have done that. He goes, yeah, I know. And then when his mom found out, she goes, of all the teachers, you threw it at Mr. Woods. Like, you know. <laughs> well, at least you threw the one that wasn't going to break at you. That's pretty, yeah, that's yeah. Pretty yeah, I didn't check to see if it was hard-boiled or not. <laughs> Cool. So uh, you've come to Port Hope, you open the the coffee pub, and then I remember one time you mentioned something about maybe a brewery, but then after that you pivoted and, and opened the bakery. Yeah, so for us it was actually the brewery was almost impossible in town, and now we're so lucky with Ganaraska Brewery opening around this, around this corner here. The, um, the downtown of Port Hope is the only part of the town that is zoned for a brewery. That is? Okay. And it's also the only part of town where all the buildings are completely incapable of supporting the weight of large brewing tanks. Right. <laughs> so, so we uh, we looked at um, we looked at it. we there was one building, the old Walton Hotel, the yellow building on right. John Street. We looked at, but it's not really set up for the purposes we were looking for. But it has a brand new concrete infrastructure. It's actually all redone inside. It's beautiful. Hopefully, someday it opens. But every other building would have required us to build basically a second building inside of it to hold the weight that we needed it to. Right. And that wasn't tenable for us. So Ganaraska Brewing had, uh, I guess, a little bit more capital and a great plan and found that location where they could build on. Right. Um, and that's pretty much the only way town was going to get a brewery. Uh, we actually, our original rental was on Cavan Street. And it is now the Port Hope Social. The, oh, yes. Um, whatever. The, yeah, the, the event the, space. The or event something? space. So we yeah. rented that for a coffee shop and brewery. But okay. then, unfortunately, the environmental reports came back so badly that we had to exit there. Right. <laughs> so so they won't be having a lot of made-on-premises food in that space, unfortunately. Right. Um, which is, you know. Um, but, yeah, so we tried. And maybe we'll get back to that someday. I mean, our our 10-year plan, if we can figure out how to get there, is we want to be raising 100% of our grains for our bread as well as beer grains. Um within this area, like within definitely a hundred kilometers, probably closer to 50 kilometers. Um, it's really interesting. Like red fife grain is originally from Asphodel. It's the first place it was grown yeah. in North America. Uh, there's a lot of good history of growing those things here, but unfortunately none of them are grown here now or very, very, very few. So right. we're trying to figure out um, how to collect the right um, individuals and thought leaders to sort out how we can convince and make it worthwhile for some farmers to, uh, switch back to growing things that we could we can use for our products. We'd love to be milling things here and doing the whole um, farm to table uh, completely throughout our products, but we're not quite there yet. Maybe by that point we'll be ready to do a brewery. Yeah, I, I and you know what the the building that the bakery is is in it, it's like been for me it's it's like geez that that was perfect timing. It, it, they're in an an old coffee shop. So they have a drive-through window. So during the the high times of the pandemic or the unknown times of the pandemic, you were still able to stay open through that window. You know, it's amazing uh, how flexible the small, like you said, mom and pop businesses can pivot. Yeah, I mean, I, it's uh, it's. We feel like we've reinvented our entire business every day or two for the last year and a half, and we're very, very, very tired. But we were really fortunate with some of the infrastructure we had. We opened there a month before the pandemic, and uh, we actually didn't intend to ever use the drive-through because we don't really like drive-throughs. Right. Um, we don't go to drive-throughs, so it wasn't. 
And it's also when you're a small business, people's expectations of drive through is that somehow your food will be ready within like 15 seconds. Exactly. And that's not how we, I don't even know how to make food like that. Like I don't even use our microwave at the house. I don't, it's just not, I, I, I like slow food. I like to, I like to treat myself when I, so anyway, that's not really our perspective isn't to, to, to handle that. But um, the drive through saved our bacon when we were totally shut down last year. Yeah. Um, to the chagrin of some of our neighbors, there were some very unhappy neighbors because we had crazy lines. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, because, we, yeah, like, we were we were having to go we just opened the bakery and then we had to figure out how to basically be like an online i don't know pickup store for yeah. um a range of groceries we started we kind of turned into a grocery store for a while so we were stocking it so you could grab your all your vegetables from us you could grab your proteins yeah um, it's just like those little stores that we talked about growing up in what? montreal you're right it was and we had delivery actually and um but it's in in the it, some of, some of those things worked pretty well. Some of them did not. Um, in terms of people's interest in buying things in that way, uh, I think now I can see even from going to the local grocery store that the online ordering has like gone up fifty fold. Oh yeah, for sure. Like they have an area for it now, and there's a team of people in there. And before the pandemic, they offered that service as well, and it was like a fridge in the corner. Right. <laughs> so it, I mean, you can see the growth of it, and I think people's habits changing that way. Um, is actually going back to something I said earlier is a really interesting approach to making it so farmers can have a larger percentage of that dollar that people put in their basket at the grocery store. So I'm really curious to see how that, how that changes going forward. Um, but yeah, so we've continued to pivot right now. We still have no seating inside our shops. The bakeries, um, take out only and limited customers. Um, and to your point earlier, I think it has benefits too. Like we, we sort of enjoy the three customers inside of the time. Yep. We would not enjoy that if we had seating. Right. But it does make every interaction feel really special. Yeah. It also depends on people being patient. Yeah. Um, and most of the time that works out really great. Yeah. Yeah. I know everybody always, I'm, I'll be in a store and they apologize for, you know, how long it takes. And it's like, dude, it's okay. I'm retired. I got lots of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, and, and, you know, I think we found most people have made that accommodation for that time. Um, I mean, now you're seeing that even the chains are having such a hard time hiring that they're not open as many hours. I, in general, I think our, hopefully, one of the benefits of the pandemic to me would be if we get away from the expectation that food is always convenient because right. as someone who raises goats, chickens, pigs, and vegetables, um, nothing about raising those things is convenient for me. No, no. <laughs> so it's, you have to plan. I have to plan. I have to carry lots of water at very awkward times that are very cold or rainy or dark. I have to. You you, you need to install some hydrants. I I do have yeah, oh, d- but we d- we've done that. But the hydrant froze one winter, and then there's all there's you know, and then getting buck- like a warm water solution for pigs that they don't break is very hard to come by unless you pour concrete. So there's like right. we've done heated wa- cables, we've done heated water buckets. We still don't have a water solution for most of the winter. Someone does, but at our scale, most of those solutions are made for say 500 hogs kept in a barn. Right. Our pigs roam two acres freely and enjoy themselves very much. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a different kind of challenge. Um, yeah, in the future, we'd love to just have a well popping up everywhere on the property. Exactly. <laughs> if I had a well driller, I would just drill them everywhere. Yeah, you would have loved the farm I worked on. It was a thousand acre dairy farm. The dairy farm, uh, we only had 50 milking head. Wow. Um, a lot of it was still forest. A lot of the hay we sold, and but it was called Spring Mount. Because there were twenty one springs. Oh, that's the way to do on it on the thousand acres, <laughs> and it and it had a beautiful view of the lake where my cottage is. So oh, that's so. Great. I worked like less than five kilometers from my cottage as a kid. You know, that's the, it's that's the way to do it. And there's lots of land like that. We actually have springs on our property. They're just not coming up in exactly the spots we want them to right. currently. But yeah, it's a uh, um, th- th- those small things 
Um, we actually had the, t- the trench dug for the hydrant. It's way down there. I fell in it and it hurt my knee. Oh. But I think two winters ago when it was the freeze and thaw winter. Yes. And even the guys that came to fix it were like, I can't believe this froze. Like, this is just about Yeah, because they go down like five feet. Six. Six. But climate change, you know, like it's, and so that particular time, like it's below the frost line unless it's a cycle of freeze and thaw, which unfortunately seems to be more our reality now. So yeah. it's, it's challenging for those, for those kinds of things. Huh. Yep. Cool. So, um, things in the future. Oh, you know what? No, let's talk about the school that you founded, you and Aaron founded. Oh. Yeah. So that's, I mean, so. Is it like a, um, a, uh, Walden type school? Uh, you know, it's, it's, I guess it would be similar in some ways to a Waldorf school. Um, I would actually say it'd be closer to a Walden school. I like that name. That's sort of the... Uh, well, that's how I always thought it was called. I thought it was no, a Walden no, school. No, it's Waldorf. They probably would have... Oh. I, I, yeah, we probably would have sent our kids to a Walden school and not found in what I like. Uh, Therosian. <laughs> Therosian school sounds great. <laughs> um, it, but it's similar. Waldorf schools are generally nature-focused in some right. way. Um, I, I'm not super familiar with how, mu- how far that goes. I know they're in buildings and everything else. So our... Um, our school's in its fourth year right now. Um, it's called Roadless Traveled Academy. It's an Ontario private school. Um, it was born out of the fact that our local public school was closed when my daughter was two. Uh, that would have been uh, Hamilton. Yeah. And then we sort of started kind of panicking. So um, part of it, I think, is cultural differentiation, too, because our options were to go into French immersion to come into town or to go to North Hope, um, right. which suddenly had a lot of students at it because yeah. they closed the other school. So there were trailers and everything else up there. Um, neither one of those was convenient for us. I mean, going to North Hope wasn't very much so. And for us, like we felt very uncomfortable having our child learn in French. I speak Spanish. Yeah. Uh, I would have been more comfortable learning in Spanish. I really felt like that was sort of, for me, not knowing French, sort of divorcing myself from responsibility to help with my child's education. Right. I could be wrong about that, but I didn't No, there's, there's my, both of my girls started off in French, and because I'm from Quebec, I was the primary homework helper, and uh, the only reason they left French was because the province brought, brought out the literacy uh, exams to graduate high school, and because I'm not a francophone, my kids couldn't write it in French, huh. although they primarily learned to read and write in French first. So my passion is definitely not the school system in general, but I will say that it's very confusing here for an outsider. (laughs) Oh, is it? (laughs) Well, there's like four public, six public school systems. (laughs) I mean, you've got, you've got Catholic, Catholic English, Catholic French, French, English. I'm pretty sure there's more. Is there another school system out there too? I don't think so. Now there's an online school system because it's actually its own school system. Yeah. So anyways, I mean, I, 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 the, we were a bit overwhelmed. So we started asking lots of questions and doing lots of research. And Ontario is actually very progressive in terms of what is a school. Like until high school, a school is a place where you take attendance of kids that are over the age of six. Like there's, that's kind of it. Um, your responsibility is for knowing where these students are, and it's really a tracking kind of thing. Right. But that allows you to do a very religious school, which there are some of. Yep. It allows you to do a basket weaving or a hockey school, which right. there also are some of. Yeah, <laughs> Not yeah. Not maybe basket weaving, but hockey schools. Um, well, you can always say that, like, if you go to university athletes, when I was a kid, yeah, we take basket weaving 101. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, for credits, right? Yeah. Well, and but our so our thing, when we started really having to think about school, because it was a foregone conclusion, like in Toronto, we lived across from Dover Court Public School, which was exactly the public school I would have loved my kids to go to. And right. in hindsight, 
I think we made the mistake of assuming that public schools would be a little bit more homogenous across the province so right. that by moving out here, we would have a very similar experience. Yeah, no. No. So that, that, that left us feeling lacking. And so we, um, we really reflected on why we moved out here, which was to be more in nature. Yeah. Um, we started researching uh, Scandinavian education styles, kindergarten, which is literally school in a garden from German. Yeah. Um, looking at other examples across Canada, and we found there was a lot of forest schools, which are like for younger kids just to get them outside. And we were like, well, why can't we just be outside and do academics? And so we um, constructed with some help from, from people that we hired for the team, uh, basically something based off the Ontario core curriculum where it's an academically focused outdoor, we call it a nature-based academy. So essentially the kids are outside 70% of the time. Um, we're, we were previously based in the Ganaraska Forest. Uh, we outgrew that and are now on Hope Goat Farm. They were really nice. They let us build three yomes, which are combination yurt and yomes. Yeah. And we have a little washroom building. Um, and those are used on the coldest days of the winter. But otherwise, like the kids are eating lunch from campfires and they're doing all their writing and reading outside and um, also spending a lot of time with animal husbandry, chores, cleaning up after themselves, which is something we learned from in, in Korea and Japan. The kids clean their classrooms every day. Yeah. We thought that was lovely. Um, and so we just started patching together this, you know, our kids are still young. They're seven and three. Our son's there for the first year this year. Um, and we continually check in on, like, our main reason for starting it was for our kids. So we have had a lot of other kids that were there. Uh, the pandemic has been really bad <laughs> for our school. Um, really? Oh, man. But the uh, we can talk about that in a second. But, the, but essentially, every time we check in, we're like, no, this is still really good for our kids. And so... Um, we're going to keep on trying to make it catch and, and figure out how to get it right as we go forward until such a time that we either can't or that it's not where we feel is a really great place for our, for our team. See, that, that would have been an awesome school for me to go because I, I lived in the outdoors. My, I was gone early in the morning. My mom knew. I lived right on the edge of suburbia, and there was a set of railroad tracks at, at the end of our road that linked Montreal and New York. <clears throat> And you just walked up and down those tracks, huh? Well, we crossed the tracks, and it was just all bush. Nice. Yeah, so we were in there building forts, catching pollywogs and tadpoles. And that's Yeah, and we do that, and it's called school for them. And I, and I yeah. think that's it's interesting because I, I don't think it would have worked at all when you were growing up because that's how we were all doing stuff. Right. And now it's not. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very – it's kind of counterculture in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, to have them out there, but really the crux of the school and the reason we think it'll work is that we're committed to having eight students per teacher. So inside, outside, on a spaceship, I don't think it matters. For us, we looked at the public system and the number of kids, and especially with the integration of a lot of um, the kids that have learning challenges beyond the normal and how that affects the classroom as a whole, and put that together with cinder block classrooms and fluorescent lights, and we were like, you know, I think we can we can have them spend their childhood differently. Yeah, so for that's, sure. And so that's what we've been endeavoring to do. Um, it's interesting, though. The number one thing we compete with that gets us every time is busing. And I think it's actually part of why we started the school to begin with is when we spoke to parents that we knew who had kids a little bit older than ours um, and were already in school, their feedback on their school came down to lunches and busing over and over again. And they didn't seem to have any direct line of sight to what was actually happening academically or right. in any way about learning. And I I didn't get that. Right. <laughs> so... So I think in general, our culturally, because of busyness and two two working parents and everything else, we've um, we've closed a lot of the opportunities for parents to be directly involved in their kids' education. And, and for us, I think we want to be a team with the teachers that we entrust with our children and work right. together to raise these, you know, hopefully kind, empathetic, smart, and curious human beings. 
Yeah, I, I I always remember I would have my as I called them meet the creature night, and and they'd expect me to tell them things about their children. I said, ah, okay, so it's the end of September. I've been with them, you know, twenty days for six hours. You tell me about your kid. That's you right. know, like. Well, yeah. that's how we started this school year. It was we we actually do those. Um, interviews with the parents and the students because we want even our six-year-old to have agency for their life right <laughs> like I, that, that's their school like we're so we sit down at the beginning of the year with the teacher and both our three and our seven-year-old and we all talked about hey what do you want to learn this year what are you interested in right now and try right. to unpack that and then a lot of their curriculum plans try to base itself off of that i mean we sort of do an intersectional curriculum so they'll be studying chickens they're hatching some eggs next week nice um but that enables conversations about math creative, right? We just put it all into one focus, right? Like instead of having an hour for math, they're learning about chickens and they happen to be multiplying and counting eggs and they happen to be writing creatively about those chickens and what they might look like. And they happen to be learning about how the egg develops yep. and they happen to maybe be dropping some eggs and figuring out why they break. Right. And suddenly we've covered the entire curriculum and it was an hour, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, so I think when, and, and that's all um, empowered by having, um, non-overwhelming ratios of students and teachers, I think, you know, yeah. and we still have, even with like, say last year we had 24 kids enrolled in the school. Like we have some of the same challenges that you'll have in other schools. It's all the same to some extent. Right. Um, we just feel by having a different relationship of, of number of teachers to students, those things can be handled a little bit differently and For sure. we can meet students where they are a little bit better. Um, and we don't have any impetus to move them to the next grade. We don't have grades. Right. So it's just they're there and they yeah. are learning with their other peers of different age groups yeah. and focusing on whatever tasks that they're most ready for and can take on next. Right. Yeah, I always remember, like, I was forced to teach English near the end of my career in the last 10 years, and I was like... <laughs> That's why I went and got a phys ed degree, so I'd never have to teach English. I was an English major. I think that could be a fun thing to teach. <laughs> well, actually, you know what? I, I did have lots of fun with it, especially like when I taught poetry. Yeah. I'd start off with rap music. For sure. You know, I'd ta talk, I'd play Leonard Cohen. I love the smart board because it helped me. And then we, you know, we'd have Grandmaster Flash and a Furious Five and Jay-Z and that's And so we'd intro into poetry that way. But, um... I, I mean, remember you could do some Bob Dylan too. Yeah. You don't have to stick just with whatever. Yeah. You can go up with some Leonard Skinner <laughs> for a different take on yep. that. You got <laughs> yeah, for sure. But I always remembered, I was like, okay, I, I hated reading when I was a kid. I, I didn't really read a whole lot because I was always outside. So I apologized to the girls in the class because a lot of the stuff that we did, I tried to pique the boys' interest. So mm. all the magazines in my class, thankfully, my sister ran uh, Simon & Schuster Publishing in Canada. So I was able to go into a warehouse and get all the old magazines of National Geographic, Explorer, Adventure, all that sort of stuff. Then I had my collection, collections of outdoor magazines I'd take. And even, you know, we'd start the year off with um, uh, literature circles, but adventure or um, survival-based. And that sort of stuff. Right, so, so a lot of like, uh, oh, let's see. Hatchet. Yeah, Hatchet's a good one. Oh, you know what? It was even a little different because there was a book, and I always included it. It was uh, uh, We All Fall Down, and it was about a young boy whose dad worked in the World Trade Centers and it was oh, Take wow. Your Kid to Work Day, 
on September 11th oh, wow. and and getting out of the towers and, and, and all that sort of stuff. That's a very nice book to have the opportunity to write if you're in that situation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's a... Um, uh, th- the uh, there's a drone, just a gigantic drone. Did just you tell someone we were filming this? No, yeah, yeah. So shooting. here in Port, <laughs> here in Port Hope, as we do a sidebar, it's like got the oldest historically correct downtown in Ontario. So a lot of uh, TV programs and uh, movies come here to film. So there's this gigantic. You can you, uh, can you hear it? Yeah, yeah, it's hard to miss. Yeah, so I I don't know if they'll be able to listeners will be able to hear it in the background, but it was kind of weird sitting up here over the main street and there's this gigantic uh, drone going over well, us. Well, it, it's really interesting when you mention about the magazines because like our school actually is going to have a fairly um, strong bent towards STEM or what I call as STEAM, which is yep. you know science, technology, yep. engineering, agriculture, and math. Which I really think agriculture should be in there. Yes, more farmers and farming is actually becoming a very technological pursuit, increasingly small and large together. Um, but our our opportunity now, like uh, my my three year old finds what he wants on YouTube. Sometimes it finds him, but for the most part, he finds it. Yeah. And so for today's students, the other reason we started the school is we looked, and I'm sorry because you're in this career for so long and i do not mean anything against no 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 i'm cool man But i think we were always you know modern schooling started in the industrial revolution it was tied to that sort of manufacturing capacity and and um it hasn't changed and so like we don't need to be rote with how we teach students now what they need is to learn how to access the tools that they need to learn things right like every day on the farm i youtube a video like i had Uh, i call it youtube academy you know and you can find anything so why not teach them to use those tools for their benefit i mean computers came out when i was like i think i had my first computer when i was 12 and for a while it was like very slow games of solitaire and occasionally, eventually, Euchre multiplayer cards. Right. <laughs> but there was not the access to information in the same easy way there is now. But that information comes at a risk of getting the wrong information. So yes. teaching our kids to be critical thinkers, actively critical of the information they're taking in, to check sources, and also to be able to use that tool in a way that's beneficial for them and not having to carry so much information in their heads. Right is a huge, to me, opportunity of modern education. I mean, I, I think the main thing you learn in school is how to be a human being and be social. Yeah. And I also think that that can be conducted differently when you have small groups of kids with teachers. But in general, um, having classes uh, that are year-long that could be covered in, and are covered in a one-hour video on YouTube somewhere seems like a waste of everyone's time and efforts yeah. to me. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, especially, yeah, it, it was, I would always tell the kids, I said, I, they call me a teacher, I'm not really a teacher. What I want you to get out of being around me is how to navigate the halls going from point A to point B without getting into trouble. Yeah. You know, and then and then I would throw things in, for example, being a carpenter, I teach Pythagorean theorem. Well, there's a spare room across the the hall that was a shop. We'd go out there and I said, Okay, and you know, some people say, Oh, how'd you say that? Or how'd you keep your job for thirty years? And so I'd point to kids who I would have a relationship with and I'd say you know I'm kind of thinking you may end up owning a landscape business or being a carpenter or laborer and you have to figure out how to get a 90 degree angle out of nowhere how do you do that so we'd go across the hall and I'd teach the kids Pythagorean theorem and it's a real life application sure and uh, I said you know what if you see me in the future let me know that you still remember this if you do just yell out three four five and doing it in that way versus learning about the history of Pythagoras and that he was a Greek mathematician <laughs> and that you write this equation, like 
that's not the functional learning that no. we need, right? And so my seven-year-old knows how to do an oil change, and she does our car really There you well go. Because that's important. Yeah. Like, they know how to use hand tools. We actually bought a set of farm tools and uh, equipment that's sized for them correctly so that it's not uncomfortable yeah. to use, but they can use it appropriately. Yeah. And then they can do all kinds of things. And yeah. so I think there is, um, yeah, it, it, it's funny because it's become, as, as the school has had a hard go a bit, I think harder than we expected, but not in terms of my child's experience of it, children's experience of it now. Um, it's made us a bit more passionate about why we think it's a good idea. Right. Um, and honestly, the other main reason for us is there is so many people carrying so much anxiety and self-doubt now that we want those kids to be solving their own problems. We want them to be getting out of jams. We want them to be emotionally intelligent and empathetic. We want them to learn about First Nations. You know, we, yeah. we they dive in at six years old when they hear stuff on CBC in the morning about some terrible news story. Right. They ask, and at, at Road Less Travel, they talk about that for perhaps half the day. That's good. Like, they spend time getting into that because yeah. that's, that you know, it's not a place where the kids are being protected from anything. They're they're out there and getting cuts and scrapes and falling off things, and they use <laughs> knives. And, you know, it's and living life the way you and I lived life. Hard knocks, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Well, that's really interesting. Well, I, uh, do you have any things coming down the pipe that you can share or oh i mean I, so i think so aaron and i have been in business for 10 years with happenstance um we own 100 percent of the company i think we've the pandemic has been very hard um our, our next step is figuring out uh how to bring some more smart people onto our team like right. we, we've become now like we've made it through growing we are now a, a, a teenager of a business so you need to thrive we need to thrive and we need to have we know where our weaknesses are and we're going to be looking for some people to join our ownership team and we're going to be looking to open a couple more locations in this area um we've always envisioned our business being diverse in terms of what its access points are but that all of it is underpinned by having that social justice and food justice right to it well i like that food justice i like that yeah Uh, I mean, ensuring good access to food for all, you know, and having it be convenient. And so we don't have any plans of going out of Northumberland County, but we do want to make it very accessible for people to come to us for different things. So we're um, kind of thinking about a breakfast and lunch diner next somewhere. Um, Brewery's always still on the agenda. Um, your breakfast? I, I miss your sandwiches. Oh, they're back, man. Friday I know, Saturday. I know, because, you know, what, the pandemic first hit, everybody was driven home, right? And <laughs> so I, like... I developed my own. <laughs> Good. Yeah. And I, did, I didn't, I can't remember, uh, is it the devil's yep. breakfast? Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the mayonnaise that you put on it. Oh, garlic mayonnaise. Yeah. But I thought there was one that had like a, there was a pepper or something like that. Like a oh, it has ghost chili peppers. That's it. Yeah. I couldn't find any. So I used uh, Thai chili. So that's okay. Yeah, you know what? It was a reasonable facsimile. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're really happy to have them back, and we're really grateful to see the town in Port Hope coming back to life a little bit, and we're so thankful that people keep interacting us with in, in these different ways. I mean, we're, um, we're currently building a, a speakeasy downstairs, which is a secret, obviously. Yep. But in the back of the coffee pub that used to be full of people having breakfast, we've, we've coordinated it off, and we'll probably have a 15-seat little cocktail and craft beer bar. Cool. Um, we're, we'd really like to have more nightlife in town. Um, I think we're just kind of getting to the point, like we still have a few more years of having young kids and then we'd like to start getting more involved in, in making this a town that our kids might enjoy staying in. Right. <laughs> I think they're, we're very much lacking in things for teens and 20 year olds. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I think there's a, 
I think I I I could get in trouble here, but I kind of think that's always been the stance of our town council is bring the old people here. You know the, but you know what, old people. Sorry, old people. Um, and you're not that much older than I am, but uh, they're kind of stingy with their pocketbooks, and they're they're not like families, and they don't go out and spend the money that a young family needs to spend. Well, I push back on that a little bit. I mean, our average age of customer here versus Toronto is probably 35 years older. So there's a bunch of cool old people here. Yeah, they <laughs> can they, be cool, and they and they are they are active, and they do understand local business. I think there's um. We have a seriously lack. We have a very big lack of rental housing and oh, huge. housing in this area. Yep. Um, we have a town that's not very encouraging of cycling or pedestrianization of pedestrian movement. And what's what's interesting? I'm going to say I don't even know what year it is. Maybe 1992. We had an NDP government, and they brought in all sorts of environmental stuff. And we had they set up a Port Hope Inner Green team and. When they found out I was a cyclist, they asked me to join the the team, and I told them, I said, you know what, cyclists have money. They have a lot of disposable cash. You need to make the downtown or the, the township uh, attractive to cyclists. And, you know, it was like 20 years later before we got, you know, paved shoulder on Highway 2. I used to have to ride that, yeah, uh, not have to, crazy. I chose to, to ride it in the wintertime when I had to go to a school board meeting or something like that. Well, I mean, we have these two, couple pedestrian crosswalks in town, which now we actually have official ones with lights, which yeah. is awesome. Yeah. They are not in places that are connected to the downtown at all. Downtown, right. we still have painted red crosswalks with a paragraph of small prints about how to cross the street, yeah. which is the worst crossing I've seen in anywhere in the world, and I've seen lots of them. Yeah, I know. Here uh, in town, the pedestrians yield to the cars, cars but everywhere else, the cars yield to the pedestrians. That's it. Yeah, and I think there's... um. Uh, you know, for the cost of that red paint, they could have had 50 bikes painted on streets, like on Ontario Street, where it's wide enough for two cars. <laughs> yep. Uh, and just to signal that this is a place and make people think about sharing the road. Like, I, I'm safer riding up by my house north of town than I right. feel in town by far. Yeah. I mean, it's a... Uh, um, people in the country tend to be pretty good at moving over. They might oh, go by sure. 100 kilometers an hour, but they have moved over. Yes. Yep. <laughs> and I think in town it's a little trickier sometimes. And I, you know, I think there's a lot of education that can be done to make it nicer for cycling in terms of it's their right to take the lane. Yeah. You know, it's it there are rights and obligations to being a cyclist. You're just a regular road user. You are a car by all the yeah. senses of the word. Um, I so was never ever mean to any drivers who didn't know their place, but I would stop and educate them especially crossing the old barrett street bridge which was one lane oh yeah that i always took the entire bridge and some people would get cross with me and then i would explain to who i was and what i did because i was a national examiner for a can bike program and i would train bike yeah. cops oh cool yeah. when i i uh, i was the president of the board of directors for cycle toronto okay um previously the uh, bike union in Toronto. Yeah. Um, I also was the recipient of a very, very hard getting hit by a car and oh. waking up in the hospital experience. Um, and I just think bikes are great. I have bikes tattooed on my legs. Yeah. I had, I had no car for about 10 years and it was lovely. My uh, family grew up without a car. That's awesome. We went camping on a Greyhound bus. Oh my gosh. Which the listeners know of that. So <laughs> I gotta check that episode out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if you can do that still though. I don't know. They might think that that's a, um, unattended uh uh trunk <laughs> it's an awful lot of stuff you can put in a trunk oh that's really cool yeah no, i know i think for the future we're hoping to just keep on 
doing our thing. We, I, we want to find more people that care about their food and who want to work together with us to make this in our area that we live in a better local food economy and a more resilient local economy in general. Um, and I think that's that those are our passions. So we, we want to find ways to work with people in this area, to work with farmers, um, to keep more money in this area yeah. um, that can be reinvested in this area, and to also actively encourage people to understand where their money goes when they don't actively do the other, um, right. which is what's missing for a lot of folks. Yeah. So, um, you know, when you go to your big grocery store chains, when you go to your big uh, chain stores and chain food stores, that money doesn't stay here. They tend to pay their people will say, oh, they employ people. They do. They do. They tend to pay the minimum wage. Yeah. They tend not to give them the best jobs. They tend to come to my place of employment after working there with a very low sense of self-worth. Right. <laughs> they make them very bad employees for other people, <laughs> that's yeah. quite honestly. Yeah. And so encouraging folks to understand how they can participate in changing that simply by spending differently and investing differently. Um, and creating different habits and understandings around around their food and also their consumerism. Right. I think to me is um, the hardest opportunity for us to take advantage of currently because it takes everyone doing it, but it's also got the biggest upside for everybody. Right. Um, not in terms of everyone being able to afford the things they can now, but in terms of adjusting consciously to what will be a future reality where we do not have the wealth or opportunities that we've had in, in this area and country for the last you know, 50, 60 years. It's yeah. Gonna be, it's going to be different. Yeah, it is totally different. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you very much for taking just over an hour out of your busy day. That's one of the reasons why it's been a hard time to nail Nick down. I was kind of hoping maybe we might have had Erin sitting in on this too. Well, she'd probably jump in and have a very different set of things to talk about. I'm so sure maybe, maybe I'll have to do a part two. I have done part two interviews before. I mean, as you can see, I can fill an hour pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. So, no, it's it's been awesome. And uh, thank you very much. And if you're in Port Hope, uh, we're on the corner of Ontario, no, Ontario Street yeah, and Walton awesome. Street. And uh, the bakery is on Peter Street at the bottom of King Street. Yeah, and then in Coburg, you can come see us on 3rd Street next to Victoria Hall. So Yeah, I, I was looking for your uh, location, and I finally found out where it was. So, nice. Yeah, so anyways, uh, thank you for coming to the community of Port Hope. I always thank people that because when our school turned 100 years old, just next to the shop that I had was a safe, a vault actually, because back in the day when the school was built, the towns were the um, school boards. And uh, so looking through some of the names that I was, I was given that task, they would send stuff down and I'd look, I was like, man, those names are still here. So I just always like to welcome people to uh, increase the gene pool <laughs> in Port Hope. That'll get me in trouble again, but uh, that's okay. Anyway, so thanks very much for making the time. Oh man, it's been a pleasure. Thanks oh, and you're on uh, social media presences. Oh, so on, uh, hap uh, we're at This Is Happenstance all one word, on Instagram and Facebook, um, at Wandercluck Eggs, which is actually a whole other business we didn't even get to talking about. That we oh, yeah, had. I it's wanted to little, ask you about that. A little egg company. Yeah. Um, and then at This Is Happenstance, also we'll get you in touch with cute pictures of our goats, chickens, pigs, and occasionally children. Right on. All right, well, thanks so much. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Keith. It's been a real pleasure. And it's nice to do one in person. Yeah, this has been really fun. Yeah, even though we see our mics in front of our faces. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again. Well, thanks a lot for listening to episode 20. I can't believe it's already been episode 20, considering I figured uh, when I started this, I might do one a month beginning in January of 2021. 
But uh, here we are, and uh, I want to thank Nick Cluley so much for doing this interview with me. Uh, it's been a long time coming, but, you know, he's a really busy entrepreneur, as most entrepreneurs are, and it's hard to uh, take them away from what they love. And uh, so don't forget, you can find him on Instagram at uh, This Is Happenstance and on Facebook also. And uh, hey, if you're in uh, Port Hope, Coburg area or Northumberland County, come on down to uh, Port Hope. Check out the coffee pub and uh, bakery and the roastery. Anyways, thanks again for listening and uh, check back in a couple of weeks for another new exciting episode of the Skippy Report.